This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, it's Mike. It's the Saturday show, and that means it's Saturday. Actually, I just committed a logical fallacy. The contrapositive is not the same as the opposite. Uh, actually, it is technically. It's that the obverse is not the same as the contrapositive or the negation. Anyway, what I'm saying is, I will be talking on Saturday, but you may not be listening. So what we do every week is we bring you one from the vaults and one from the past week. The one from the past week is my talking about what's going on in Cap Street in San Francisco. It's been going on for quite a while. I did get a very interesting and detailed uh, Reddit message from a 27-year prosecutor in San Francisco who talked a lot about his, I think, his history of prosecuting prostitution. And he took issue with my implication that San Francisco has decriminalized prostitutions. I don't think I imply that, but if you infer that or if one were to infer that, I just want to be clear that what I'm talking about is the impetus or the notion of decriminalizing prostitution and what that leads to. What I advocate for is what it should lead to is thinking three steps ahead and what happens to a very robust market once that is decriminalized. What I put my finger on is this movement to view prostitution as not an affront to the prostitutes or the sex workers. That comes with it some consequences. One consequence is to stop punishing people who are either victims or shouldn't be seen as victims, which is to say the sex worker. I'm on board with that. But another is that I think all this talk of trafficking, this overstated, unchecked talk, which informs a lot of QAnon, is happening at the same time as the notion of sex work has replaced the notion of prostitution as the proper way to conceptualize it. Anyway, I'm not going to spiel about the spiel. I'll just give you my spiel. But first, this is an interview we did in 2017, and Namdi Asamoah came by. He was an all-star defensive back for the Raiders and then the Eagles. Eagles are in the Super Bowl, really one of the best of his era. And then he became a film producer. He also acted in films. And we talk a little bit about the comparison between the world of Hollywood and the world between the stripes on the gridiron. I also will say this, that Namdi Asamoah, people say, what's your best interview? I don't say it was Namdi, but I do say this. Of all the guests I ever had, he was the most gracious. He was the most polite. Just the idea, the thought that kept coming off of him and that I couldn't escape was, here's a guy who was raised right. He was just polite and he was interested and he was charismatic. And then afterwards, he didn't have to do this. In fact, I would say almost no one does this. 
he sent me a handwritten thank you note for hosting him, for allowing him to be a guest on The Gist. No, it was our pleasure. You don't have to send another thank you note this time, Namdi. Enjoy that interview from 2017 and this one from Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I have a friend who's in jail for a murder he didn't commit. He's been locked up for more than 15 years now and we can't get no justice for him. Everything we do comes up short and he's got no fight left in him. I'll work for free if you take a look at his case. Do you have his court records? Yeah. Okay. Bring everything you have next time we come. I got it all in my car right now. Crown Heights is the story of a falsely accused man. And interestingly, his best friend who worked for years to get him out of jail. It is based on a true story, a story that originally appeared on This American Life. The movie is starring Namdi Asamoah, who is an NFL veteran and... You know, there was some debate. Was he the best corner in the NFL? I'm a Jets fan. I have to say Daryl oh, Revis was up. that's why there yeah, was debate. Yeah, a little debate. Because you're a Jets <laughs> I love how you Not threw the that here. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we'll get to Crown Heights, but okay, while we're at it, Revis was a great shutdown corner. He would stick on one person the whole game. Wouldn't you kind of just erase a portion of the field more? Didn't you play a little bit different than Revis played? Off the ball and then hawk to it? Yeah, most At, yeah. most of the time we it was basically you take care of this half of the field and then my teammate on the other side would take care of that half. But then depending on if it was like a you know big stud, then it would be, okay, follow him around. So it, it varied based on who we were playing. I asked pitchers this question. I was a sports reporter for 10 years. There's always oh. one batter who flummoxes them. them. Was there one receiver, maybe not even the greatest receiver, but was there one receiver who always gave you a little more trouble than people would think? I love how you said maybe not even the greatest because when I was coming up in the league, yeah. it was a lot of the guys that were maybe the third or fourth receiver. Like in my first two years, it was the third or fourth receiver mm-hmm. that I would have trouble with for some reason. But then when once I started to get the hang of it. Is that because he was like the little slot receiver and you're big and use your size well and he could like sneak under you and be crafty, that little third guy? No, there just wasn't a lot of tape on the, the, oh, the fourth see. guy, you know, the third or fourth guy. So you couldn't really study anything. And that was that was how I really made my living was just with the preparation. But then once I got the hang of it, there were a lot of guys that were challenging. I, I think playing with Randy Moss and, and having to see him every day, that was a good challenge for a young me. Yeah. It helps to have a great receiver on your team 
to yeah. uh, probably you probably helped him too. Yeah, definitely. And I came in the league with Jerry Rice and Tim Brown on my team, so not bad. Yeah. So but would I, they want to give you tips, or was it more like, why am I giving a defensive back tips? I know he's on my team this year, but in free agency, he could be going against me next year. They would not give tips <laughs> verbally to to me at all. You know, and I came in thinking that that was going to be the yeah. case. Yeah. Um, and even teammates on the defensive side wouldn't give tips. You know, in that sort of way. But you learn by basically being in the fire and going against these guys day after day. So let's talk about Crown Heights. How do you come to the material? Our director, Matt Ruskin, made this wonderful five-minute documentary of Colin and Carl, the the two guys um, that the film is based on. And he was passing it around and letting people know what he was doing. And eventually it made its way to me. And I just reached out for the script. And once I got the script, I asked if I could audition. And then I'd say a month later, he let me audition, and, and then I became a part of it. It's a strong part of the story that these guys are Trinidadian. And therefore, I suppose you, you wanted to tell the real story. You didn't really want to tell a story based or loosely based on it. You wanted to tell the real story as close as you could. You had to do the accent, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even talking to the guys, there's no just hearing them talk, there's no way you would want to go in and sound like... Uh, un-American right. doing this role because it's just not going to do the same justice for it. So we got a, a dialect coach who's actually in the film, a native Trinidadian uh, American, and he helped us out for a few weeks pretty much every day so that we could get it down as close to the Trinidadian as possible. You grew up, are your parents first generation American? They uh they were are, they born in Nigeria? Uh, they were yeah. born Let's in count Nigeria. The generation. Like, I don't even know what's, yeah. yeah, they were born in Nigeria. They moved to the U.S. in the seventies. So, did they have accents? Oh yeah, heavy. They couldn't even do American accents if they tried. Like, Whereas growing up in a house with accents, and you probably without trying are unaccented, but I bet you could lapse into. I don't want to get it right. It's probably not Nigerian. It's Igbo. Ebo, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and it helps, yeah. you know, because you just de- you develop an ear for it without even knowing you're developing an ear for it. I've always been fascinated by accents and how many different voices I can try to do. Yeah, do you, do you do impressions also? The impressions is the one thing I can't do. It's very difficult for me to do. I mean, I, I don't want to say I can't do it, but it's it's difficult. There's nothing that comes to me. I think that there's nothing that comes to me on the fly. Uh-huh. Everything I have to train for, and I ha- and it's going to take a little bit of time, and then eventually I'll get there. But I'm not one of these quick learners. With school, with athletics, with everything. With everything, I have there's there's not one thing that I can think of in life where it just came, you know, automatic. Do you think you have acting gifts? And here's why I ask. I know you worked at it. We talked about working at the accents, but you're not a guy who went to who trained to be an actor. You haven't been acting for 20 years. You started acting, what, at the tail end of your football career? Yeah, halfway through, yeah. Okay, so um, it's been a but, couple years, and you really nailed this role in Crown Heights. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. I think, and that's the one thing that I was really crazy about. I just kept wondering, am I, do I need to go back to school for this? Because I'm such a researcher, and I'm yeah. such a, I try to do as much training and studying as possible and then throw things away when the time is is there and so I was like do I need to go back to school for this and do four years or something but I kept getting back from coaches that I would go to 
that you've got so much life experience already that you can use that in your acting. So you don't have to necessarily go down that road. If you were 18 or 20 and and getting into it, mm-hmm. then, you know, those are the ages where, sure, go back to school, you know, or find a master's program or something and, and figure it out. But life and, and football really prepares you for everything that you're going to deal with as an actor. Okay, so let's be specific. Talk about a scene in this film where... You're playing a character, going through something you've never gone through, I assume, trying to get their friend out of jail for this crime he didn't commit, and then tapping into a real-life experience. What was the real-life experience? How did it play out in a scene in the movie? So when I was, I'd say, between the ages of 13 and 16, I was arrested twice, and both times for things I didn't do. This was in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I'd spent a day in a holding cell both times, but it it stays with you when something like that happens and it's stayed with me ever since. And I've never even really talked about it. And, you know, there was a moment in the film where I'm sitting across from Keith or Colin and he's kind of, you know, he's saying, you know, he's, he's fed up and he's at his wit's end and he says, you know, why are you still doing this? And he starts, you know, getting mad at me. Yeah. Why do you care so much? You have yeah. your family. All he's upset that you're throwing your life away too. Why are you still at this, man? You got your family, you got your job, you got your life. You know, why you, why you keep wasting your time on me? It's not just about you. It's bigger than that. It could be me in here. And when I was working with my coach, Eden um, Bernardi, who sadly passed away right when we finished shooting, Mm. I told her about my experience. And she said, at this moment, when you're talking to Colin, when you say that this is bigger than you, this is about all of us, she said, you're talking to your 16-year-old self. And that blew me away. You know, that was a clear example of just bringing in a life experience into the work and and just letting it play out. And there's no amount of schooling that that would have done that for me. How does an acting coach differ from a football coach fundamentally? Uh, hmm. I don't know how they that they necessarily differ. I think both of them, they stress the technique of things and then they stress being in the moment and letting go of the technique and just trusting your instincts. So I, I if think they're good, that, if they're good coaches, if they're good coaches, yeah. that's absolutely right. But at your point in your acting career, you can choose to associate yourself with good coaches. You, I would assume hired your coach. What do you do on a football team when you're stuck with someone who you don't think is a good coach who isn't connecting with you? Let's be charitable. Well, hopefully you've had enough experience at the time to where you can sort of lean on, some of the things that you've learned along the way. If it happens to you early enough in your career, then best of luck to you because that's <laughs> gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be tough to to get through. But if you have some years under it, maybe you can just lean on what you've already learned. But that's a very tough thing because it makes you vulnerable. If if you got a bad high school or college coach, you might not go on to the next level. And if you have a bad pro coach, <clears throat> your careers are so short and there are no guaranteed contracts and they could use you wrong and maybe someone of slightly less skill is out of the league just cuz they weren't coached right. 
It happens all the time. That's always a very difficult thing as a player and as you know, a teammate to see happen. I would also assume a football coach at certain points says, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. And I've only had football coaches. I've never had an acting coach. But I don't know that acting coaches have are that didactic about right and wrong. Some of them are. Yeah? Some of them are. It's. Uh, Does that work for you? Do you respond to that? It doesn't because the first maybe year and a half that I was in the league, I was trying to play the same way that either I was taught or that I saw other people mm-hmm. playing. And at the cornerback position, I realized in my third year that – you need to develop your own sense of comfort, your own skill, your own style. You know, and when you look at the best corners that have played the game, they're all very distinct. They have a distinct style. I mean, or at least I can say that they have a distinct style because I've studied them and I can watch within one second if you blacked out um, their numbers, I could tell you who the corner is. There are probably some actors like that who are such forces of nature and it would seem to an outsider that, well, can you really model yourself on like a Philip Seymour Hoffman, the guy so great? And yet at the same time, I bet you could take something from him. Yeah, you can always take a little bit. There's always something to take, but it's the moment when you start imitating yes. that you start going backwards. You right. know, And it's, it, it's the same thing for football. That's how I learned going into acting that I wasn't going to copy the best people. You know, I'll watch them and appreciate them and can learn Something really the thing that I learn is that you really can transform. When it's good acting, you really can transform into someone else. You know, it's not, it doesn't look like acting. You know, and oh. it, that's, and yeah. isn't that the best? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's the absolute best. And I have three films that I always go back to whenever I just want to just be in love with acting. One of them is Goodfellas because I don't think there's a false moment in that entire film. And I don't care who it is. It could be like the young Henry, yeah. or it could be, you know, the oldest guy that, that shows up. You know, it or doesn't... the guy in the FBI who takes his pinky and just tastes the yeah, coke. Yeah, the, goes, yeah, exactly. Says, I got you. Exactly. That one moment is exactly. yeah. That's right. The or babysitter, G- the, 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 the guy in the, the kid in the wheelchair stirring the that's right. pasta. Jimmy two times. I yeah, mean, yeah, all these guys. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's, it's just perfect. And, and that's what I sort of gravitate what towards. What are your other two? The other two are Boys in the Hood for me, Malcolm X. The, it, just, there just aren't any false moments in those three. And they all came out around the same time. So Yeah, early 90s. Yeah, the early 90s, yeah. yeah. So they all kind of hit me in a certain way. And it's well, How just, old were you then? I'm doing uh, math. So Boys in the Hood, we snuck into Boys in the Hood. So you were like 16? I was... Eight or nine? Oh, oh, oh! You were a, you were a boy in the hood. Although yeah, not the hood. We're yeah, in LA. No, in LA. Yeah, right in the, right in the hood. hood. This is why it uh, it struck me so much. Oh man. But yeah, that that age around, you know, all of those films. Okay, I just want to uh, go back and pull a couple threads. When you did get arrested, were you let go, exonerated? How did it play out? Yeah, I. Um, so one of them, I was just. It's something we call driving while black. Yeah. Um, I got pulled over and the cop said that I stole the car. Um, I told him that I didn't, that it's my mom's car. He said, well, you know, you, you don't look like the type of guy that should be driving a car like this. It was like a 96 Nissan Maxima. Yeah. Got me out of the car. He checked the car and I didn't know this, but the car was licensed to my mom's business. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't to her name. 
So, you know, he comes back and he says, you did steal this car. You lied to me, calls his back up, you know, pulls me out of the car, puts me in cuffs and arrests me, takes me down to the station. And, you know, I was just I was in there for a day. Finally, they let me go because they they finally like reached my mom or someone that could could vouch for me. And then I was out of there. But we you know, it was both times that happened. We we fought them and, you know. We won uh, in court, which was like a little, a little small fee, and then the guy, the cops got, you know, reassigned to mm-hmm. different districts. Could that have made your entire future? Isn't that crazy? I mean, it could college have. It could have scared colleges away. Isn't that crazy? You could have got the reputation of I don't know brushes right. with the law. That's right. I could see why it would connect with Crown Heights. Yeah. 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 Because, but for a couple of bad breaks especially visited upon vulnerable people, the outcome of life would be so different. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was tough for Colin. In Colin's situation, they were more interested in, in a conviction than they were in the truth. Yeah. And that's, anytime you got kids in that situation, like it's a, it's a lose-lose. Namdi Asamoah, he is the star and a producer of Crown Heights. It is in select theaters now, and on September 15th, it will be released in even more theaters. Namdi, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. The growing sentiment to decriminalize sex work has led to a consequence that few in the city of San Francisco seem to have anticipated. It's that if sex work is no longer prosecuted, then sex work will no longer be enforceable as a matter of law enforcement, because law enforcement will no longer be involved in regulating sex work, policing it, if you will. As a result, neighborhoods and streets where children and families live have become open-air markets of sex workers parading their wares. The residents living on Cap Street in the Mission District talk to the local Fox affiliate. Violence of the pimps, that they not only intimidate the women and men handle them aggressively, they also sometimes intimidate the neighbors. ABC also reported, quoting residents who didn't know what to tell their children as prostitutes were having sex on the front steps of their houses and their houses were being broken into. We have a sanctioned red light district on Cap Street. We see women walking down the middle of the streets pretty much naked. Um, The line of bumper-to-bumper cars all towards 3 o'clock in the morning. It looks like the Las Vegas Strip. Fed up with what they say is a lack of action by city officials and SFPD. Five residents agreed to share their stories. They fear for their lives and asked to remain anonymous. I'm scared. I'm scared of the pimps. 
The sentiment was shared by many of the all anonymous residents that ABC talked to. For now, these residents say they're trapped inside their homes until something changes. It's like every night pimps and prostitutes come and take our street hostage and neighbors are shut in. San Francisco police cite Bill SB 357 is the reason they're unable to stop this from going on. Sponsored by San Francisco-based legislator Scott Weiner and signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, this bill repeals a provision of California law criminalizing, quote, loitering with the intent to engage in prostitution. As Weiner's press release says, the criminal provision, arrests for which are based on an officer's subjective perception of whether a person is acting like or looks like a sex worker, results in the disproportionate criminalization of trans, black, and brown women. Maybe, but you know who else looks like sex workers? Sex workers. Both ABC and Fox and the San Francisco Chronicle showed images of these sex workers, and they obviously are sex workers. Now, I suppose technically they just seem to obviously be sex workers to me, who, by the way, might well be disproportionately trans or black or brown. But in any case, the police cannot now stop them from loitering. So what the city will do is barricade this particular block from cars, which will, of course, only push the trade a few blocks away. So a new set of residents will regret what might be the overall laudable goal of legalizing what was once called prostitution. And it also seems that even as we're reconsidering what to think of sex work, we haven't reconsidered so much of what we think of sex buying an activity engaged in by what are still called Johns. The customers are not sent to sex-consuming school. It's literally called John school, and it is a condition of criminal sentencing. So in San Francisco, it's the Johns versus the Karens. Most of us, if not all of us, don't really have a problem with the sex workers or even their business itself. It's really the fact that this is a residential neighborhood. In all actuality, these women, like the one quoted here, they're just mothers and residents who don't want their neighborhood to become a red light district. They're not Karens. I was just making a hilarious joke, but it has a point that just as we're making efforts to destigmatize prostitution by not calling it prostitution, we still continue to stigmatize or in fact newly stigmatize those with concerns by inventing derogatory labels for them. Maybe there's a permanent amount of judgment that anyone's society possesses and it can only be redistributed, never lessened. In any case, the big villain isn't the sex worker. It's not even the person on the street who doesn't want to be beset by sex working. It's the pimp. And by the way, that label is still the pimp, not sex management. One effect of the success of the shifting of blame and stigma away from prostitutes, sorry, sex workers, such that we don't even say prostitute, we say sex workers, is that more blame than ever is laid on the pimp or the shadowy and possibly imaginary apparatus above the pimp. The idea of sex trafficking has become something of an obsession, occupying the place of concern that prostitution itself used to occupy. So what's happened is you see the phrase and the idea of sex trafficking everywhere, often untethered to the reality of how widespread it really is. It's become a QAnon trope. It's become a big right-wing talking point, even apart from QAnon. This is Super Bowl week when sex trafficking stories and supposed statistics are rampant, but impossible to verify. In fact, they're not even hard to rebut. 
What I would like is a more methodical approach to all of this, less emphasis on changing words and more on thinking out ramifications. Advice to the advocates of the world. When you ask for a reform, and it's a pretty big reform, and the reform happens, and the situation is shocking, appalling, or just bothersome to the citizenry, media, other elected officials, you've got a problem on your hands. And of course, you'll always be able to use phrases like just growing pains or change is hard, but also maybe you should anticipate that radical reforms will bring with it radical outcomes. That was the point of radical change, but the outcome won't always be in the direction of progress as you define it. And rather than blame moms and homeowners with a distaste for being thrust into a pop-up outdoor brothel, have a bit of a plan beforehand anticipate that this is going to happen and that not everyone is as on board as the most dedicated among you. Decriminalization is almost never and should almost never be an end goal. What do you have after a crime stops becoming a crime? Decriminalization just means you're not going to be arresting people engaged in activity, but that activity will continue. In this case, people are engaged in a robust, multi-layered marketplace Ask yourselves, what happens then? You might want to think out the consequences if sex workers are as free to work their work as any other vendor, especially considering the guy who runs the coffee cart distribution network or the pretzel vendor syndicate doesn't kidnap anyone or force any worker into a lifestyle they'd never have chosen for themselves. And look, maybe that doesn't happen with every or even the vast majority of sex workers either, but a disturbing number of people are worried about it. Just the very fact of widespread worry can't be discounted. It's a concern and it's part of the reforms that you're advocating for. It seems to me that thinking about how the decriminalized market will function is every bit as important as achieving the decriminalization. In fact, you might want to think about that beforehand. It's not a problem. You can forever shunt a few blocks away. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. We will talk to you on Monday after a Super Bowl is decided and perhaps after you are tired.